As Trinity Episcopal Midtown family continues conversations surrounding racism, we would like to thank each and every one of you for your contributions to this podcast series. Our goal is not to debate whether or not racism or white privilege exists, but rather simply to share our individual experiences and to work to find ways we can address racism, both personally and professionally. We believe this can be accomplished through the exchange of open, meaningful, and respectful conversations surrounding anti-racism. We believe that collectively and as Christians, we can work proactively toward identifying and opposing practices, structures, and systems that enable racism to flourish and exist in our world. It is our hope that through this work we can achieve a greater understanding of social justice, which is simply allowing all persons equal access to the benefits and freedoms of a society and to also be free from the unequal distribution of its burdens. First of all, I want to thank the rector for inviting me uh, to do this. I want to begin by quoting a white man, a Frenchman, Albert Camus. Camus said that he wished that he could love justice and still love his country. Uh, I personally feel that way very strongly, particularly today. Camus also said that the task of the Christian church is to make the message about justice so clear that there cannot be any doubt in the mind of the simplest man where the church stands. The church in the U.S. has never really done that, and as far as I can tell, the institutional white church, and by white I mean not the color of the skin, but an ideology and a structure that dominates this country. Black people can be in the white culture. The church has not been willing to make clear its position in relation to racism. As a matter of fact, it has maintained consistently a position that if you take a sort of mediocre position, not being clear like Camus said, but that if you take a mediocre position, sooner or later people will come to that position and say it is a good thing. In, in the 19th century, in the diocese in which I was ordained in Virginia, uh, Episcopal clergy owned slaves, and very often they said that it was a good thing they were buying the slaves because as good Christian people, they treated the slaves better than non-Christians would. That was an argument made also by 
Martha Washington, George Washington's wife, who owned more slaves when they got married than George did. And also, Christian Church, Bishop Mead in, in, in 19th century, again, in the diocese in which I was ordained, preaching to black slaves, said, you were very fortunate to be slaves because the Bible is very clear that the first shall be last and the last first. So when you die and go to heaven, you will have great honor, and what am I going to have being an exalted bishop? That sort of attitude has prevailed. In the last presidential election, 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. 58% of mainline Protestants voted for Donald Trump, and 60% of Roman Catholics voted for Donald Trump. And what Donald Trump represented in Make America Great Again is white supremacy. So you can see very clearly where the church is. The church, as it exists today, has one task, to die. The church, as it exists today, has one task, has a task of following Jesus to the cross of being crucified and being resurrected anew. When I was about 12 years old, one weekend my parents were gone. I grew up in an apartheid culture, and I did not grow up in South Africa. I grew up in North Carolina and Virginia. It was an apartheid culture. It was against the law for white people to go to school with black people. It was against the law for white people to marry black people. My roommate in college, who was Japanese, Roger Nagaki, in Virginia, could not marry his white girlfriend from New Jersey because of the laws of the state of Virginia. It's the world in which I grew up in. There was no justice for black people. You could, you could shoot a black person, much like today, and nothing was ever done. Okay? One weekend, my parents were gone, and they had left a black maid who took care of us. I knew this woman, her name was Mary. That's all I knew. Well, my parents got tied up for some reason. They couldn't come home. So they called and they asked if Mary could stay until Monday morning. They were still to be home on Sunday. She said yes, but she had to take us, me and my brother, to church with her. So my parents said, okay. So I went to church with this woman. It was an all-black church. I never had that experience before. But I also learned she had a last name. I also learned that she could read and write, and she taught a class. I was so shook by that experience that partway through that liturgy, I had to leave because I realized in that moment as a 12-year-old, I didn't put it in these terms, but that I had been miseducated, that I had been lied to, But I also realized that this person was a person. And I was not able to live after that as if that were not true. It was absolutely shocking. Unfortunately for me, or maybe fortunately, I took that concept to my civics class in which one of the professors I admired had answered a question that I had raised about if the South had been always so segregated, how come so many black people were so light-skinned? And he said, well, you can figure that out. Well, so he said, the races have been mixed a lot, and none of these people are pure black or pure white. They're mixed. 
So in the next class, I said to the English teacher, you know, a lot of people are not pure black, pure white, they're mixed. And it's very hard for us to tell in the South who's what. How can you tell? She said, you need to go to the principal's office. Okay. So it gave me to the principal. I said, my civics teacher agrees with me, called him in. This teacher I admired said he never said such a thing. Okay. And I was told, you say anything like that again, you get kicked out of the school. So I learned very early on that I had been miseducated. Part of what we need to realize in this country is that racism has to do not so much with whether you like this person or don't like this person, etc. But you must understand the culture. This whole culture, the United States, is built on a lie. We are where we are today because, number one, stolen land, number two, stolen labor, and we've never faced into that. If we are to confront racism today, we as a people need to be very clear, need to be very clear that we can no longer, no longer, just simply steal land and labor. Western European culture created these categories of race so that they could destroy cultures, so that they could destroy the Quiche people in Guatemala, so they could, so they can say today, as the president says, that Mexicans crossing our border are all thieves and rapists, okay, and. 81% of white evangelicals vote for that president. 50 years ago, five states voted for George Wallace, who was running on a segregated platform to be the president of the United States. Okay? He didn't win. But the Republican Party says, look, what we have to do here is the Southern strategy. So Nixon picks up and wins. Racism, as H. R. Brown once said, is as American as apple pie. And all of us need to realize that we live and support a system that is white racist. And what we are called upon today is to destroy that system. No longer play around with it. You know what we will do with Black Lives Movement? We will say, well, Maybe we need, we've already done this big move, on one TV show, The Bachelor, we're going to have a black man, <laughs> okay? So we've made a big change, okay? Racism has to do with who controls power, resources, sets norms and values, and how you explain that. You always explain it by pointing to faults within the minority community. But the easiest era to, area in which to change is in culture. So you have a black guy on the dating game, or you sell dashikis, dashikis in Macy's, okay? And you say, this is a big change, or everyone buys rap music, okay? But you never change the structure. We have to, like Jesus today, take the whip and drive the white supremacists out of the temple.
everyone. Thank you so much for joining us in segment three of our podcast series titled Racism Revealed. A very special thanks to the Reverend Canon Dr. Henry Lee Atkins Jr. for speaking with us on this important issue of racism and what it looked like to him when he was a 12 years old boy. It is truly our hope that we as a congregation and all church congregations throughout this nation will work tirelessly to see to it that justice is made clear and that structural racism is completely dismantled on all levels. All Christian churches and faith leaders are challenged to speak openly and rightly about the ways their institutions have benefited from buying and selling human beings and how they've grossly failed people of color, including using the Bible interpretations to justify the evil sins of slavery. In 2006, the Episcopal Church apologized for their involvement and began work on racial reconciliation to minimize inequities. It is our hope that these conversations will continue and that they will inspire people in our church families and in families in larger communities all across the globe so that we will come to heal the racial divide of all marginalized people and that we will one day live in a world free of hate and racism. I'd like to close our segment for today with a prayer titled, Let Me Not Look Away, O God, by the Right Reverend Stephen Charleston of Choctaw. Please bow your heads with me. Let me not look away, O God, from any truth I should see, even if it is difficult. Let me face the reality in which I live. I do not want to live inside a cosseted dream, imagining I am the one who is always right, or believing only what I want to hear. Help me to see the world through other eyes, to listen to voices distant and different, to educate myself to the feelings of those with whom I have nothing in common. Break the shell of my indifference. Draw me out of my prejudices and show me your wide variety. Let me not look away. Amen. I want to thank you for joining us and we look forward to meeting again next Monday, July 27th, 2020. Until then, my friends, be safe and take care of yourselves and each other. This is the Reverend Hannah Elizabeth Atkins Romero, 
rector of Trinity Episcopal Church in Houston, Texas. I want to thank you for joining us for this podcast, Racism Revealed. I want to thank our co-hosts, Angel Williams and Sheila Rainwright. Love to thank the Trinity Jazz Ensemble for providing the music. I'd like to thank our truth teller, the Reverend Henry L. Atkins Jr., my dad, and also Colin for his uh, production magic. Please join us again next week. And to find out more about Trinity's offerings, go to our Facebook page or our website at trinitymidtown.org. Thank you for joining us. God bless.